We're going to dive right into it this morning. Psalm 131, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. And in this uh, short little psalm, we're going to see why in our lives we are often so busy and we are so disappointed. Anybody else out there busy and disappointed? It's like our, our default. Busy and disappointed. Why? Why? Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that Psalm 131 is one of the shortest to read but the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. One of the shortest psalms this morning we're going to dig into, and it has deep, deep truths for us. It's a really easy one to memorize. I would encourage you to do so, because what we're going to find here is encouragement for us to find hope and contentment, we're going to find uh, the secret to avoid disappointment and a frantic life because we're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to find that pride or humility produces contentment, which leads to hope. Humility produces contentment, which leads to hope. And the opposite of this, pride produces a frantic life, which leads to disappointment. So if you have been busy and disappointed in the last week, I want you to lean in this morning. We're going to start right here with verse 1. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And what we find here right off the bat is that if we want to lead a content life, if we want to find contentment, if we want to avoid a frantic life, if we want to avoid disappointment, the path to being content starts with humility. It starts with humility. And, and this is so different than how the world wants to find contentment. Right? And this is often so different from how I try to find contentment, how we try to find contentment. The world wants to find contentment by making sure that everything in their situation, everything in our environment, everything around us is perfectly lined up, right? Is perfectly in order with the desires that I have in my heart. I see what I want and I make it happen, right? The world tries to be content through control. If I can control my environment, if I can control my desires, then I will be content. Psalm 131 tells us that there is a different path to contentment, and it starts with humility. And so the question is, all right, what is humility and how do I get it? What is humility and how do I get there? We can find a definition and we can find a starting point to getting to humility right here in verse 1. So first, let's look at what humility is. What does humility look like according to Psalm 131? Well, according to verse 1, humility looks like a heart that is not lifted up and eyes that are not raised too high. All right, a heart that is not lifted up and eyes that are not raised too high. What's this mean? Let's, let's start with the heart here. The heart is used in a bunch of different ways in Scripture. And here it's saying, my heart is not, is not lifted up. And, and we might have maybe a general sense of what this is saying to us, kind of, kind of in a spiritual sense. Um, we know that this isn't like talking about the actual organ in our body. We're not like lifting up and like pushing down our heart. It would probably cause a heart attack or something. Maybe a nurse can tell me. This is not what this passage is saying. So what is it saying? 
Well, I want to hop back to uh, Genesis 6. We're going to look at Genesis 6, verse 5, because there's a really cool connection between our heart and our action. And I think it's going to be helpful in what we're trying to see here regarding humility. So this is Genesis 6, verse 5. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And, and look at this, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What do we see about the heart in this passage? Well, we see a few things, right? First, we see that the heart has thoughts. Okay, biblically, this concept of the heart, the heart has thoughts. These thoughts have intentions. And these intentions have dispositions, right? They're, they're judged either good or they're judged evil. So the heart has thoughts, it has intentions, and it is either good or it's evil. And so what we find here is that biblically, when we talk about the heart, actions and thoughts and our heart, they're all connected and they all talk to each other. All right? Our actions and our thoughts and our heart all talk to each other. And I think most of the time, the, the hierarchy, it goes, it goes one way, right? The heart controls what we think and our thoughts lead to our actions. Sometimes our heart skips the thought part and it just goes right to actions, right? We feel and we act. And oftentimes the, the hierarchy, it runs one direction. But sometimes the things that we do can control how we feel. You think about, my, my wife used this all the time in kindergarten. If she had a kindergartner who was angry, right, she would tell them to, to breathe, right? Can you, just, can you just breathe and not punch that kid in the face? <laughs> Let's take some breaths here. And our breathing can change the way that we feel. So sometimes we can make it go the other way. But most of the time, we think and we act because our heart or our desires, our feelings, they drove us that way. Biblically, right, our heart is the engine of our thoughts and our actions. So when we're looking at pride here, pride looks like desires or thoughts or actions that are lifted over others, that are, or are lifted above over God. So this is the heart, that our heart is lifted up. Our heart is not lifted up when we are pursuing the Lord. So that's the heart. Let's look at the eyes in this passage. Pride also looks like haughty eyes. It says, my eyes are not raised too high. What does this mean? I think this is getting into our, our disposition towards other people. Right? Do I walk around looking down on others? Do I walk around in arrogance? Do I judge others? Am I looking God in the eye? And if we're wondering about this in our own life, okay, you know, am I, am I walking around with my eyes lifted up? Do I judge other people? Am I an arrogant person? I want to give uh, just a few maybe uh, diagnostic tools to see whether or not there's a hint of arrogance in my life. And spoiler alert, there is, right? We all have hints of arrogance in our life. But look at this list. This is not a, uh, a complete list, but just a few things to speak to ourselves to see if we do have eyes that are lifted against other people. Arrogant people tend to see the worst in others without considering their own sin. 
Arrogant people are often unable to receive constructive criticism, seeing it as an attack. Or arrogant people often reject accountability because they do not want to allow others to see their own weaknesses, their own shortcomings. Arrogant people often blame others for their failures because they're unwilling to acknowledge their own shortcomings. And then arrogant people have difficulty apologizing or pursuing repentance because their way is the right way. What does eyes that are lifted high, what does eyes that are judging other people, what do arrogant eyes look like? I put forth that maybe, hey, maybe arrogant eyes look like this in your life. So humility looks like thoughts, desires, and actions that are not proud and a, and a disposition that is not arrogant towards other people. And all of us can, can grow in humility, right? And if you were listening to the qualities on this list and you immediately went to other people, right, you're like, oh yeah, that person doesn't forgive, right? That person has a really hard time receiving my constructive criticism, right? Don't lift your eyes against other people. We have it right here in the passage. If you cannot consider that perhaps you have something to grow in on this list, then you might be struggling with eyes that are lifted against others. A humble person looks to grow themselves into the likeness of Christ. They don't look to control others. And you might be looking at humility and pride, arrogance, a heart that's not lifted against other people. You say, you know what, that's great, Scott. But most of the time, I can't change how I feel. I can't change how I feel about something. Sometimes people are just wrong and I need to tell them. You don't understand the life that I lead or the genius that is behind these eyes. So how do I make sure that my heart is not lifted up, is not proud? And if this is what humility looks like from this passage, how do we get there? Right? Because understanding it and getting there, two very different things. How do we, as Christians and followers of Christ, how do we pursue humility in our own life? Right here, the beginning of this psalm, we see a clue. Humility begins with considering the Lord above everything else. Pride begins with considering self above everything else. Look at how the psalmist begins this passage. He says, Oh Lord. I think so often in Scripture when we get to something like this, we, we breeze on by it because the author didn't know what to write, and so he just put Lord in there. It's kind of like how we start prayers or, or end prayers. You know, God, dear God, in Jesus' name. We, they're just kind of like placeholders, right? Well, I think that the psalmist was intentional with how he started the psalm. It's an important part of the passage, and in order to pursue humility in our own life, we have to place ourselves in the correct mindset and understand our position before God. You see, it's really easy to be haughty, it's really easy to be prideful when you only consider yourself and you compare yourself to other people. It is impossible to be proud and haughty when you compare yourself to the Lord. The psalmist wants us to consider the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to consider the Lord? Well, let's maybe look at the opposite. What does it mean to consider self? 
or to compare ourselves to others. If, if the psalm started, oh self, what would that mean? I think maybe it would mean that we look inward for all of the things that we need. We look inward for the ultimate things in our life. We look inward to see what our actions should be. What is my heart telling me that I should do? And so that's what I'm going to do. We look inward and we compare ourselves to other people. We find value in the way that we are better than others. If we are honestly thinking and considering the Lord, our inner desires and thoughts would reorient appropriately. It would be impossible not to. And I want to take us to a place in Scripture where this happened, where somebody saw the Lord, where somebody considered the Lord, and they had their desires reoriented appropriately. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision of God the Father. He's a vision of the Lord. And he sees the Lord in his throne room. And this is what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, well above me. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw the Lord, saw the Lord for who he is, saw him in his power, saw him in his majesty, saw him in his glory. And what did he do? He didn't look God in the eye. He didn't say, oh, you know what? I see what you're saying, God, about my sin and about my desires. And you know what? I've considered it and I think my way is better, right? Isaiah saw the Lord and this is his response. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the Lord, and there was no room for arrogance or pride. I think about it like this. Um, if you didn't know, the World Cup is going on right now. Anybody watching? Yes? Nobody's watching? That's okay. Okay, so... World Cup's going on right now. Some of, you, some of you may have played soccer. I feel like everybody played soccer at some point in their life. When you're a kid and then you went on to lesser sports. You might have, you might have played. And uh, there, let's be honest. There are probably still some fields and some games that you could go to right now and you could play on. Like you could step on the pitch and you could play and you could be fine. Maybe you go to Joan Martin uh, at recess. Maybe you went like two weeks ago to Joan Martin. And you stepped on the recess pitch, and you played against some first graders, right? You feel pretty good about yourself after playing some first graders. Going and tackling some first graders, right? Smashing the ball. Doesn't matter who's in goal, that little girl. You feel really good about yourself. You step off that field and be like, man, I am good. I am good. Now, think about if you stepped on the field of a World Cup game right? We'd all be throwing up in the corner in like six minutes, right? You, you can't step onto a pitch, you can't step onto a soccer field at the World Cup and think that you're good at soccer. It just doesn't work like that. And so you can walk around in your life and you can compare yourself to other people or you can compare yourself to people that you think are less than you and you might be thinking, hey, I'm doing pretty good, right? And I'm going to say that's like playing soccer against first graders, 
And what Isaiah experienced is he stepped on a field at the World Cup and he looked around and he said, I have no business being here. And there is no room for arrogance or pride when we consider the Lord. And what the psalmist is encouraging us here when he says, oh Lord, he wants us to quickly raise up our eyes to see and consider the Lord and then quickly avert them so that we might understand our place. And our place is humility. And when we consider the Lord, not only is humility the only option that is left to us, but it also shows us what we have control over. It shows us what we have control over. Considering the Lord and not comparing myself to other people helps me understand my box of control, all right? Helps me understand my box of control. The haughty person believes that he is in control of everything and is often disappointed. The humble person understands that there are limits to his control. The second part of verse 1 says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. I do not occupy myself with too great, things too great or too marvelous for me. And the first thing I want us to understand about this passage is that this, this section of the psalm is not preaching passivity. This section of the psalm is not preaching passivity. God doesn't call us to be passive. He doesn't call us to sit around doing nothing, right? Oh, I don't concern myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Work tomorrow, just too great for me. It's too marvelous, I'm just going to sit out. This is not what the passage is saying here, right? The humble person is not lazy, now, how do we know this? How do we know this from uh, this psalm? Well, let's, let's think about uh, the nation of Israel. Let's think about the people who would have been singing this psalm of ascent as they went up to the city of Jerusalem. They would sing this song as they walked up the hills to Jerusalem. Let's think about the history of the nation of Israel, right? In slavery in, in Egypt, miraculously freed by the Lord, they went to the promised land after wandering and they stood on the edge of the promised land. And with the Lord, they captured the entirety of the promised land. They went to war, right? They did things. They did incredible things. They beat armies larger than them. They beat armies more uh, well-equipped than them. The nation of Israel did incredible things with the help of the Lord. The church today, right? Our, our clarion call of the church today is to go into all of the world and preach the gospel, and watch people be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is what we're called to do as the church. That's a pretty incredible thing, right? That's an amazing thing. And so, so we're not called to laziness. We're not called to passivity as the church. So if this isn't preaching that, what is it saying? What is it saying? Well, I think what the psalmist is saying here is, is a confession about what he's in control of. It's a confession about what his box of control looks like. He is saying, I am not God, and I can't do the things of God. Two other places in the Psalms, we have this language, great and marvelous. And we're going to see, uh, let's, let's see, let's see what it, what it says. Psalm 86, verse 10. For you, this is God, for you are great, and you do wondrous or marvelous things. You alone are God. Psalm 136, verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Great wonders, marvelous things. 
great and marvelous things in the psalm is often used to refer to the works of God. So what the psalmist is saying here is that he or she does not concern themselves with the things that only God concerns himself with. The statement of control. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves what we are actually in control of. And really, when you get down to it, my box of control, is, it's pretty small. It's pretty tiny. I got a little matchbox of control. When we remind ourselves what we are in control of, we humble ourselves before God. It's hard to be proud when you tell yourself that what I'm in control of is not very much at all. So what are a few things that God does that I can't do? What are a few things that God is in control of that I am not in control of? Here's a, here's a short list, a very limited list. Well, first, God knows all things. I do not. I do not know all things. I know very little. God is perfectly just and able to execute judgment. I am biased. I'm biased in my judgments. And I cannot perfectly execute judgment. If somebody wrongs me or somebody across the world wrongs somebody else, I am not in control of that. But God is perfectly just and able to execute that judgment. God has the power to save your soul. I have no power. I have no power to save people. I have no power to bring people from spiritual death into spiritual life. God does. God can keep our loved ones safe. I don't really have control over that. I don't really have control over that. God sustains life and faith. You know, I can work hard to keep myself healthy. I can work hard to pursue the things of the Lord, but at the end of the day, my life is in the Lord's hands. Only God sustains life and sustains faith. We can try and we can try, but really the things of ultimate importance are outside of our control. And this is not frightening. This is freeing. We are free to give those things that we cannot carry over to God and know that he is in control of them. Anyone who's been in leadership uh, knows how freeing it is to pass on responsibility, right? It's all fun and games until the buck stops with you. And then when the buck stops with you, you just don't want to deal with it. And when you've been in a position of leadership, you know how freeing it is to pass on something to somebody else, right? It was really nice when Ben got here. And I was like, well, you know what, that's Ben's job. <laughs> so we find humility. We find humility by considering God and giving up control of the things we couldn't control anyways. And this leads to contentment. This humility and releasing of control leads to contentment, right? If humility leads to contentment, the opposite of this in this psalm, pride, leads to a frantic life. Let's go to verse 2 here. Psalm 131, verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. What is a calmed and quieted soul. It's a soul that is content. It's a soul that's content. And you can see how humility and, uh, and a proper understanding of control can lead you to contentment, right? If, 
I know that God is in control and I stop trying to, to mash things into my tiny matchbox of control, a measure of contentment has to follow. More than that, I'm content with whatever the Lord has for me. Some of the people that I admire most in my life are those who can face a diagnosis or the loss of a job or a family crisis with a calmed and quieted soul. And this is what I want for my own life. To be able to go on, to be able to continue on and trust the Lord come what may. The psalmist gives a description of what this looks like. What does it look like to have a calmed and quieted soul? He says it looks like a weaned child. looks like a weaned child. I have learned a lot about nursing this last year. It's an incredible thing. It really is. It really is. So, but what's the psalmist getting at here? And I think there are two, there's two different ways that, that this passage could be taken, could be interpreted. First, this could be speaking about a child who is completely weaned, okay, who does not nurse anymore. And this usually happened in Jewish culture around the age of three. There was a big feast, there was a big festival because that child is, you know, on its own. It's, it's living life. It's providing what it needs to live. And if this is the case, then what the psalmist is saying is that my soul is like a child that doesn't cry out in hunger to her mother anymore but rather seeks her mother out because of who she is. It's a statement of the relationship. So it's not what she receives from her mother, but rather there's a contentment in the relationship. That's, that's one interpretation. A child who's been completely weaned and just wants to be held by her mom because she loves her mom. A second interpretation could be uh, a newborn. A newborn who has just finished nursing, and is resting upon her mother. Right? And a nursing child, if you think of anything that is more uh, distraught than a child who needs to nurse, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else out there, right? A nursing child is frantic until it receives what it needs from its mother. A newborn will let you know when something isn't right or something is not happening or it's happening too fast, or it's happening too slow, or not at the right temperature, or whatever, a thousand other reasons makes a newborn go off. But the picture the psalmist is giving is a newborn baby falling asleep with her mother after she has eaten, completely content, completely satisfied, and safe in her mother's arms. A weaned child is content being with its mother when it has received what is necessary for life. And this is the second interpretation. And you know what? I don't know which is right, but I think both are appropriate. Either a child who's been completely weaned or uh, a baby that is resting against their mother after feeding because, this is why I think both are appropriate, because both highlight the importance of the relationship between the mother and the child, and it highlights the importance of our relationship with God the Father. And the question for us here, is my soul content to be with the Lord and accept the things that he brings into my life? Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. The things that God brings into your life are for your good. Do you trust him for what you need? Or are you trusting that what he has brought into your life is for your good? What does it mean to be content with being with the Lord? 
What does it mean to be content in our relationship with the Lord? I think about it like this. If, if the Lord were a person, okay, if the Lord were a person, what would the quality of your relationship be like? We all um, probably had some less than comfortable uh, family interactions this week, right? You're with people that you only see like once a year, and you're like, man, how long do we have to stay? Why is conversation so hard? I have no more small talk. It's all gone. Like, I have nothing else to contribute to this conversation. Why are these relationships so much harder than our family relationships? You go home, and you're riding in the car, and you're like, man, does everybody else think we're as weird as we think they are? Right? And the answer is yes, right? Yes, they do. And they just want to be with their immediate family. Why are they so much more comfortable? Why are we so much more comfortable with our immediate families? Because we know them, and we spend time with them. If the Lord were a person, would it be a relationship that is comfortable? Would it be a relationship that is full of conversation? Would he know you? And would you know him? That is what it means to be content with the Lord, right? And if I am relying on myself, if I am proud and I'm relying on myself for ultimate things, if I'm trying to expand my box of control as big as it can be, then my life must be frantic, like a hungry newborn. This is the picture we get in the psalm, right? I have to work. I have to figure this out. I have to make this happen. I have to, I have to, I have to. Because it depends on me. And this creates a frantic life. Humility produces contentment found in our relationship with the Lord. And this contentment leads to hope. This contentment leads to hope. If humility produces contentment, which leads to hope, then pride produces a frantic life, which leads to disappointment. Verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This psalmist ends the song with an encouragement to Israel to continue to hope and to wait in the Lord. Waiting is hard. And waiting with the right attitude is even harder, right? No matter the circumstances, the psalmist is saying, Israel can trust that God is over it. And because of that, I can hope and I can wait well. I can wait well, no matter what I'm going through, because I know God has it, right? And I think at the end, um, there are really, other than the Lord, there are three categories of things that I could put my hope into, right? I think we could put our hope into circumstances, we can put our hope into others, and we could put our hope into ourself. Let's look at these just really quick. What about hoping in circumstances? What does that look like? Hope in your circumstances. Circumstances change. You can prep and plan all you want, but an accident or a diagnosis can happen in an instant. Hoping in circumstances is like building a house on a fault line, right? You're just waiting for the next earthquake to shift things. Okay, Hope in circumstances, no good. Hope in others. I can hope in others, right? I can hope in my spouse. I can hope in my friends. Other people let us down. They are not perfect. They are sinners themselves, just like we are. Hoping in others is like working on a group project, right? Someone will always do nothing, and then at the end, they're going to sign their name anyway. Okay? Hope in others, no good. What about myself? Look at me. I'm incredible. Hope in self. 
We've already looked at this, right? You are not able to control the things in your life because you are not God. Hoping in yourself is fine until you come to something you are unable to handle. And then what? You're crushed. So the psalmist encourages us, hope in the Lord. Psalm 20 verse 7 says this about hoping in the Lord. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand up. Trust in the Lord who knows all things and is capable of all things. Pride produces a frantic life, which leads to disappointment. If I am ultimately responsible for my happiness, I will work myself to the bone and I will be disappointed when I find that I can't do it all and I can't satisfy myself. Humility produces contentment, which leads to hope that allows us to wait. When I trust in the Lord, I see myself with a proper perspective and I'm going to find contentment and hope because the Lord takes care of his own. So as we close here, just a few applications for us. The first is this. First thing I want us to find from this psalm is that the soul follows the body, and the body responds to the soul. This psalm is very body-focused, right? We have the heart, we have the eyes, we are talking about a weaned child. We talk about how the, uh, earlier we talked about how the heart drives thought, which drives action, and, and we saw how it often happens in one direction, right? My desires leads to my actions. However, sometimes we can make it flow the other way. What I do changes how I think and feel. What I think can inform my feelings. And if you struggle with feeling discontent, or you're struggling with feelings of anxiety because of a lack of control, then one thing I think the psalmist encourages us to do is to learn how to control our body, right? In moments of stress or in frantic moments, we can pause, we can control our breath. Calm your body down and watch your soul follow. We can also speak truth to our feelings. If you are feeling out of control of a situation and your mind is just racing about all the ways you are not in control, One of the things that we can do to speak to those feelings is is we can actively speak to them, right? When our feelings are allowed to talk, they grow and they grow and they grow. When our feelings have to listen, they shrink. And so how are we talking to our feelings? We can speak the truth that God is in control. And one last encouragement about the body. Christians throughout church history have also learned to physically humble themselves in prayer. If you have never knelt in prayer before the Lord, I encourage you to try it. It is really hard to be haughty or prideful. It's really hard to feel in control when you are on your knees before the Lord. The soul follows the body, and the body follows the soul. Second thing we find in this is that we are called to pursue humility by knowing the Lord. Pursue humility by knowing the Lord. You cannot be proud when you truly consider the Lord. Considering who the Lord is and what he has done, it can look differently for everybody. But one thing I want to encourage you today is to encourage uh, you to look at the greatness of the Lord through nature. Through nature. Getting outside is not only a good way to calm and to quiet your soul, but it also shows you exactly what God is capable of, exactly what God is sustaining in this world. 
you look outside and you look up at the stars and you say, God, it commands every single giant flaming ball of gas out there, right? Or you look around on a walk in nature and you see all the things that God is sustaining by his hand. And what that does for our soul, it says, I, I am not in control of much. And that is good. And I can trust the Lord with my life. We pursue humility by knowing the Lord. The last thing we find from this passage is that we are called to be responsible, but not controlling. We know that God doesn't call us to passivity, but he does call us to work hard in following him and establishing the kingdom of God. He calls us to care about the things that he puts in our life. We are called to work hard to parent our children, to evangelize to those who don't know the Lord. We are called to be responsible with the things that God has given us. We are called to work, but we know that God is in control of the outcome, right? And he is working in our life for good. So be responsible, but not controlling. And I want to close uh, this morning with a practice um, that is new to me uh, that I found while studying this. It's called an anti-psalm. Practice called an anti-psalm. Psalm 131 shows that humility produces contentment, which leads to hope. What if we took the complete opposite of this psalm? What would it look like, and what would it tell us? Listen to this and see the vanity, the franticness, the disappointment that comes with pride. This is anti-psalm 131. Self, I am absorbed with myself. My eyes look down on others. I concern myself with things outside of my control. I have a restless and frantic soul, like a hungry baby crying on his mother's lap, like a hungry baby. I'm frantic with demands and worry. I cast my hope on anything and anyone around me, and I'm constantly disappointed. Church, we are called to seek the Lord, to find humility, to find contentment, and to find hope.